So we were wondering if, if someone were to ask you, where did we come from, what your answer would be. Yeah. I don't know. I think God, I think it's a moving force. I prefer to uh, think that it started with the Big Bang and life form started like that. I'm native, so I believe in like a uh, higher power. I don't mind where the human race started, just so long we live here and I'm happy about my life, so I don't care a damn about it. Um, I came from my mom. <laughs> I have no idea. Straight up, from God. <laughs> yeah, I believe that God created us and the seventh day, you know, we were born. This is a big can of worms because it's, it's a toss up. Nobody really knows. We had to start somewhere, but it's just one of those things that I, I think that a lot of proofs, a lot, there's a lot of researchers uh, that point towards maybe, maybe alien life forms incubating us here on the ocean, in the ocean beds. Uh, I believe in evolution. I don't particularly regard myself as an atheist. I just haven't had any proof come my way of the existence of a superior power that, quote-unquote, created us. Well, how did we get here? Uh, one thing's for certain, there's a lot of confusion out there, isn't there? Uh, that was uh, uh, real footage from some videos that we, we shot a couple weeks ago. Miles hit the streets uh, out there with JR, and they went and they just, we didn't cherry pick those. Those are just kind of in line, like some random people we talked to that were willing to have a conversation with us and answer some questions. And so that should just give you a sense when you go out and you do a sampling of the world around us, there is so much confusion when it comes to the question of how did we get here? And there are all kinds of, of answers and all kinds of ways of thinking, all the way, the range, ranging from aliens, of the Big Bang, to I don't care. Where did all this come from? This question is not unimportant. In fact, it has occupied the minds of the greatest philosophers for centuries. G.W. Leibniz, co-discoverer of calculus, which makes him all of our favorite person, uh, he was a towering intellect in the 18th century in Europe. He wrote this. He said, the first question which should rightly be asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? Leibniz came to the conclusion that the answer is to be found not in the universe of created things, but in God. God exists necessarily and is the explanation why anything else exists. This is the conclusion that he came to, and this is the goal of this new series that we're starting today. It is to help convince you of this reality, that everything that exists begins and ends with God. And if you're already convinced of this truth, like I know many of you are, our objective is to strengthen your conviction in this truth, to better equip you to persuade others of this reality and to help you understand, this is for all of us, to help us all understand the implications of this reality for our lives. That if there is a God who created the world, if there is a God who exists, what does this mean for my life? Certainly there are massive implications to this question. But it all begins here. It all begins with believing that there is a God. This is the natural starting point. How can we believe in Christianity if we don't even believe God exists or if we don't know whether God exists? 
And though there cannot be irrefutable proof for the existence of God, many people have found strong clues for His reality. Many people have been able to see what have been coined as divine fingerprints all over this world, all over this universe, found in many places, in many different ways. And all of these clues, these evidences, these arguments for God, they're all rationally avoidable at some point. You can come up with some other reason for their existence. You can come up with some other purpose But I believe if we look at these as clues and if we examine them carefully and faithfully, the cumulative effect of these clues is staggeringly powerful. God's existence may not be proved in the hard, rationalist sense of the word, yet it can be affirmed with complete sincerity that belief in God is eminently reasonable and makes more sense of what we see in this world, what we discern in history, and what we experience in our lives than any of the alternatives out there. Now let me be clear out the gates, not everybody will be convinced. If you've had conversations with anybody about your faith and about the existence of God, you already know that. Not everybody will be convinced by the evidences that you present. Not everybody will be persuaded. Many people will stubbornly resist and reject. But my hope and prayer is that you're at least, if maybe you're in that category today, you're not persuaded, you do not believe, or you're not sure what to believe, that at least you'll be willing to consider the weight of the individual arguments, the individual clues that God, I believe, has given us, and more importantly, that you'll be able to to allow the cumulative weight of all of these arguments to force you to maybe think and consider what they might mean that they would at least cause you to question what you believe, that they would cause you to seek answers and to begin a journey toward finding truth. For believers, if that's you today, and there are many of you here, my prayer is that you and I will become more skilled apologists. Uh, Apologists not in making an apology or or apologizing for what we believe. The word uh, apologist comes from the Greek word apologia. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Verse 15 says this, he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, that's the word right there, apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I want you to be convinced that the faith that we believe in is not some blind faith, it is a faith that has reasons, and it is reasonable. And we as Christians ought to be able to make a defense, to present a case for why, why what we believe is true, why the hope we have in Jesus Christ is true. I want you and and me to become more able to be persuasive with what we know to be true, what we believe with all of our hearts to be true, that we might grow in confidence and courage and wisdom and in winsomeness And so we need to begin here. Where do we find these clues for God's existence? And what are these clues? The first point is going to be a quick one, so it's going to come at you fast, and it's this, the word before us. And in fact, if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, our ushers are going to walk to the front of the church here. They're going to turn and walk towards the back, and, and we want to put a copy of God's word into your hand. So if that's you, if you don't have a Bible, then just feel free to put your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible makes its way across to you. And, uh, and that's, this is very important uh, for you this morning. 
Our, our first point is founded upon you having a copy of this in your hand. And here's, here's why this is important. You see, God has revealed himself to us in this book right here, the book that we turn to every Sunday, the book that we read from. And Paul, the apostle, wrote this in 2 Timothy. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. Let me just refresh your memory of some of the truths of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, writing to Timothy in verse 14, reminds him of what the Scriptures are and what they're capable of doing. He says this in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then here's where I want us to, to focus right now. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You can stop there. We believe with all of our hearts that the Word of God is just that. It is the words of God. And I want to be clear at the gates of this because I believe it's important that we, we lay our, prep, our presuppositions uh, on the table. I want to put my cards on the table for you. We believe not only that God exists, and we do wholeheartedly, we believe that God has actually revealed himself to us in a, a number of different ways. The primary way God has revealed himself to us is in a book. We say, that, we say it like this, God wrote a book. And God spoke to us, and God told us who he is and why we have been created. And so this morning, all of the answers that I want to draw out for you are ultimately found in this book right here. Um, this is a church, after all, and so we're unapologetic about the reality that we believe God exists and that we believe he has spoken to us. We believe this book was breathed out by God, that God inspired men to write this book. And I mentioned this up front because we're going to be referring to a number of different passages this morning, and I want you to see that what we perceive, listen to this, this is a very, very important statement. What we perceive in the world and what we experience in our hearts is revealed in God's Word. Let me say that again. We need to see this morning that what we perceive in the world and what we experience in our hearts is revealed in God's Word. God has spoken. That, by the way, is our only hope. That is our only hope, that if there is a God, and I understand for some of you that may be still a very big if, if this God exists, that he would reveal himself to us. It's been said before that God has written two books. There's the book of his word right here, and then there's the book of the world. And I want us to now turn our attention, that's the shortest point you're ever going to hear me preach right there, okay? We're moving on, and, uh, and we're going to come back to the idea of the Word of God in, in other messages. But for now, this morning, the focus of our time is going to be given to two primary points. And the first one is this, the world around us. God has revealed himself to us in the world around us. And I, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I want to root this point out of a couple of verses in Romans chapter 1 that I believe will be helpful for us this morning. The Apostle Paul, writing the book of Romans, he wants to begin with this premise that God exists and that God has made himself known in the world. 
And if you're in Romans chapter 1, I want you to look, look down at the word of God with me at verse 19. It says for this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has he done that? Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Hear hear what the Apostle Paul is saying, that creation, everything around us, everything that we're able to perceive and see before us is evidencing the reality that there is a God who created this entire thing. And, and Paul is emphasizing this because he wants to make it clear that there is no one in the entire world who is without excuse. Everybody should know God has not hidden himself. He has made himself known to all people. Now, whether they recognize him or not is the issue. But make no mistake about it. In my Bible, I have underlined this phrase, have been clearly perceived. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, the creation screams so much to us of the very character and nature of this God. I wrote in the margin of my Bible here that there has never been a time when creation has failed to display God's glory, never. It's always, always, always displayed the glory of God. So I want to start there. The world around us gives us some clues, and the first clue is what we've seen right in this verse. It's creation. Creation, there was a beginning. That's a very important statement, and you'll see as this point unfolds, but the Bible begins with the very words, if you know Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible starts with this phrase, in the beginning God, what? Created In the beginning, God created. There was a beginning and God began it all. And his creative act is what got all of this going. This is a central theme of the Christian faith, that God created all things from nothing. Everything owes its origins and ultimate identity to the creative action of God. The universe has not existed from all eternity, but it came into being in an instant. There has always been a variety of positions, by the way, in, the, in Christian circles about this fundamental belief, how this is to be understood, but the common thread uniting all Christians on this theme is that God is the one who brought the universe into existence. The question of why is there something rather than nothing has fascinated rational minds for thousands of years. This question has become more intriguing in the wake of what has been coined the Big Bang Theory. You heard somebody on the video talk about how how they believe that everything came from the Big Bang, and the natural question is, well, where did the Big Bang come from, right? Scientists today believe that evidence suggests the universe is expanding explosively outward from a single point, as if everything began at a single point in a single moment in time. Stephen Hawking, the... uh, the British astrophysicist and the renowned atheist, he wrote this, this sentence. He said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. Scientist Francis Collins says this, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, and what he calls the Big Bang. 
15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case the universe, could have created itself, he says. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me, this is a secular, atheistic scientist saying these words, and it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. Now, I just want to be very clear. I am not in any way arguing for the Big Bang Theory. I'm not arguing for the fact that the earth is 15 billion years old. I'm not arguing for a young earth, old earth. That's not the point of this sermon. That's not what we're going after right now. Another, that's for another time. My point is this, that God created everything. That everything we know in this world has a cause outside of itself. That nothing can't produce something. Something must have produced everything. William Lane Craig, a Christian philosopher and apologist, came up with this formula that I believe is very helpful. He says it like this. He says that everything um, that has a beginning must have a cause. And then he says this. Here's what naturally follows from that. The universe has a beginning. Think of this. Therefore, the conclusion is the universe has a cause. You say, well, well, what about God? Doesn't God fit into that? No, and the reason is because God has no beginning. He doesn't fit into that framework. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He has always existed, and he is what philosophers and theologians have referred to as the unmoved mover, the, the one who must have existed, who had no beginning and no end, who could start, and we know this from the, the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter one says that this explosive act of God's creation came. Listen, we don't know ultimately how it happened, but we know this. God spoke, and in an instant, listen, a bright flash of light came into being. Everything began as God spoke in power and authority. The very Word of God is powerful enough to create. He is what we believe is the unmoved mover. And you say, well, that doesn't prove that your God is this beginning, to which I would reply, correct. You're right, it doesn't, but it gets us moving in that direction. It's a clue, a clue that lines up with the biblical worldview, with the Christian understanding that in the beginning, God created. So just keep that clue in your mind. There is a beginning, there is a creator. The second thing flows directly from that, and the second clue is this, there is a fine-tuning of the universe. In other words, there can be life. That the universe we live in and the world that we live in is one that allows and sustains life. There is a, a growing realization that the universe came into being fine-tuned for life. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter one. We've referred to it, so we might as well turn there, right? Tim Keller calls this the, the cosmic welcome mat. The fundamental constants of nature seem to have been selected in order to allow life to develop and life to flourish and life to be sustained. And the question we need to ask, and, and if you come from some kind of an atheistic background, you have to wrestle with this, is this just some kind of cosmic accident? Is this mere happenstance? 
or is it what would be expected if God exists and created it? Many recent scientific studies have emphasized the significance of these constants and the values of which, if varied even slightly, would have significant implications for the possibility of human life. If any one of these constants, and by constants I mean, I mean this, these constants of physics, things, just think of this, like the speed of light, the gravitational pull upon the earth, uh, the strength of the weak and strong nuclear forces in an atom, the things that hold the atoms together, if any of these things were altered even slightly, the balance of the universe would be destroyed and life would not ever come into existence. Imagine these kind of constants represented by a a settings of the dial. Think of a a cosmic control panel, if you will, with thousands of dials that are tuned so perfectly that if one of those dials was nudged or turned even just a, a fraction of a degree, we wouldn't even be here to have this discussion. It is staggering how perfectly fine tuned the universe is so that life can exist. The findings of modern cosmology imply that if the settings of these dials were to be moved at all, in any direction, there would be no life. Collins, that that atheistic atheist scientist says this, he says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist of the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. Stephen Hawking, again, says this, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of God who intended to create beings like us. This is a man who doesn't even believe in God, but as a scientist, he has no category to understand how everything is so perfectly tuned so that we can live and breathe. Genesis chapter one, as I mentioned, God speaks and the world comes into existence. God says, let there be light, and in an instant, boom, light. Down in verse nine, it says, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. Look at verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there's seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which there's seed each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. God then creates man, and and we know the the story of man, but I want you to hear these words again, verse 28, and God blessed them, and God sent them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God 
God created this world to know life and to sustain life. It was his intention and his purpose to do so. And God is the one who is the author of this life. Chapter two, verse seven, I love this. Then the Lord God formed the man, a very specific account of the culmination of God's creative activity. Look at this, it screams life. He formed man out of the dust of the ground and God himself, look, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Everything in the creation account emphasizes a universe that is carefully designed to sustain life. Life was at the height of his creative activity. So uh, was the universe created in such a way that it knew we were coming? Uh, I would free phrase it like this. God created the universe in such a way because he planned for us to come. Like it was all designed with this in mind. Even resistant atheists are forced to acknowledge that the evidence is better explained by the idea of a divine creator than by mere happenstance. Flowing out of this, notice this third clue that there is order. There is structure in this universe. The universe has a striking and inexplicable design to it. There is order and regularity in nature. In other words, all scientific inductive reasoning is based on the assumption of the regularity of the laws of nature, that that tomorrow a pot of water is going to boil under the same circumstances that it boils today, that tomorrow uh, when you wake up, the laws of gravity are going to work the same way they work today. Mathematical principles that are being discovered that undergird the fabric of the universe. The the world is characterized by regularity and, and, and notice this, intelligibility. There's something special about the world and the nature of the human mind that allows patterns within nature to be discerned and then to be represented and explained and understood. In fact, the justification for what we call the scientific approach to inquiry was the belief in a rational God whose created order could be discerned from careful study of nature. Why? Why do we have the ability to think, to discern, to detect this unchanging order? Why is the universe so intelligible to us? Science can't answer this. They can't figure out how this happened. I mean, is it an accident? Is this the result? Is all of this order the result of chaos? Random chance? You'd have a better chance of throwing some paint, a canvas, and a brush into a tornado and coming out with a Mona Lisa. It's so improbable. But science, it's it's interesting, it assumes that everything will continue as it did yesterday. Science can't prove the regularity of nature, it can only take it on faith. And there have been many scholars in the last decade who have argued that modern science arose in its most sustained form out of Christian civilization because of its belief in an all-powerful, personal God who created and sustains an orderly universe. And that's true. Listen to what John wrote in John 1 verse 3. He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. You see, what science cannot answer, the Bible does. The existence of God makes sense of what seems inescapably troubling for the atheist. The Christian faith offers a map of reality that allows us to make sense of the observations in this universe. Behind the rationality of the human mind and embedded in the deep structure of the universe, there is a deep rational mind, the mind of God. That's why the fabric of the universe is the way it is. That's why it is constant and regular. That's why there's structure, and that's why our minds have the ability to comprehend it. So often we hear science and faith kind of pitted against one another, and I think it's helpful even as a Christian to know that science and faith are not in conflict. Faith in God offers a deeper context to the scientific method. It offers an explanation of why science actually works, true science. Third, the clue that we get from the world around us is, or fourth, excuse me, this is beauty. There is splendor. There is splendor. Let me just ask you, do do you ever find yourself deeply moved by a scene of natural beauty? Do you you ever find your heart just, just gripped and astounded? Do you ever find yourself in awe and wonder looking at a a mountain range or, or watching a sunrise or a sunset? Do you ever find yourself captivated by a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful piece of art or a a poem? I was recently uh, in the Niagara area and had a chance to be at at the falls, and I've been many times, but it it never ceases to to amaze me the amount of people from all over the world who flock to see one of the so-called wonders of the world. To look at the falls and just to be amazed by its beauty, by its power. Why? Does it make sense? Does, does beauty and does, to be captivated by beauty, does that make sense if there is no God? I mean, think about it for a moment. If there is no God and everything in this world is simply the product of what Bertrand Russell called an accidental collocation of atoms, that's a mouthful. If that's true, if if all of this is just this kind of random blending together of atoms, then there is no actual purpose for which we were made. Think about it. We're all accidents. This whole universe is an accident, and if we are accidents, then beauty is nothing more than a neurological, hardwired response to particular data that just kind of flows at us. It's only, as some have argued, listen, this is, this is the way that some secular uh, atheist philosophers try and argue that, that beauty is somehow just ingrained within our DNA. It's a sort of evolutionary process that, that our, our ancestors had so that they could see f- and find food. So, so we look at a beautiful mountain range and, and, and we're supposed to think, wow, I think that's beautiful. Maybe there's food over there. But if this is true, listen, then beauty, and you can put a whole bunch of things into this category, love and joy and emotional experiences that we have, all of these are simply an illusion. But here's, here's, here's why this is important, because this doesn't align with reality for us. It doesn't align with our experience of these things, does it? I mean, beauty to us has significance. It produces awe and wonder. It has the ability to produce hope and joy. It stirs our hearts. 
regardless of the beliefs of our mind about the random meaningless of life, listen, before the phase of beauty, we know better. We know there's more. And according to the Bible, the world we live in needs to be viewed as a signpost, not as a destination. And I want to show you that. Look at Psalm 19. Kind of just cut your Bible right down the middle and you're going to end up in the Psalms. Backtrack a little and you'll be at Psalm 19. Too many of us are used to viewing the world as, as a destination, as enjoying the world for just being the world. But the scriptures tell us that the world we live in, the universe we live in, is, is more like a signpost and it points us to something greater. Psalm 19 is such a beautiful declaration of this truth. And I remember hearing a story of a pastor. Uh, he was on a vacation in Hawaii with his wife, and he was celebrating uh, an anniversary, and he did one of those tours up one of the volcanoes. And, and it was one of the early morning tours. You can get up at like 3 o'clock in the morning, in a you know, godforsaken hour, and drive up a volcano so that you can stand on top of a volcano and watch the sunrise over the island. And so we did this tour with a group of people, and, and none of them were with them, and, and you know, he doesn't know if any of them were even believers in, in Jesus Christ or in God, but he said that as they were waiting for the sun to rise, all of a sudden as it kind of came up over the horizon, and, and this, the, the sun began to illuminate the sky, he cried out these words. He said he couldn't even help it. He just, he just kind of shouted them out. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's like 50 people around him. And, and he, said, he said he just shouted it out. He just couldn't even help himself. And he said all of a sudden people started clapping. What? They're, they're looking at something so magnificent, so beautiful, so awe-inspiring. When somebody says, it screams the beauty of God, there's something deep down in our hearts that says, yes! The beauty of the world is a pointer to, listen, the greater beauty of the glory of God. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. I mean, day and night, it screams the beauty and the glory of God. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, appealed to the beauty of nature as a clue to the existence of God. He believed that God desires his beauty to be known and enjoyed by his creatures and thus chooses to communicate that beauty through the created order so that all might see, so that all might acknowledge and all might respond to it. Nature is meant to disclose the beauty of God, producing a yearning for what it points to, a greater beauty seen in the glory of God. C.S. Lewis said that our longing for, for beauty will be utterly frustrated if we think we will find true beauty in anything that is created or finite. He says this, the human quest for beauty stirs up a sense of longing. It's really a quest for the source of the beauty. 
which is mediated through the things of this world not contained within them. Nobody looks at a great work of art and appreciates it apart from the artist. So too, we are looking for the signature of God on the canvas of His creation. In all these things, we see clues that point us to God. But in His great design, these external signposts produce internal longings that are inescapable. And while these clues may be irrationally avoided, their cumulative effect is at the very least provocative and potent. But I, I want to I urge you to think about this at a deeper level. There are even more potent, powerful arguments, very personal ones. And while we can argue that God may exist, I want to demonstrate to you now that you already know God exists. Say, so how? That's our, our third point, the witness within us. The witness within us. And you can flip in your Bible back to Romans chapter 1. See, whatever you may confess intellectually, belief in God is actually unavoidable. We, we know that God is there. That's why even when we believe with all our minds that life is meaningless, we simply can't live like it is. We know better. And the Bible tells us that the clues of this are embedded in our very DNA. And I love what Paul says in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, he flows out of the idea of God putting himself on display of creation, and, and he makes it very clear, listen, for that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We know God from creation, but there is a knowledge of God that goes deeper than that, and one of the greatest clues for the knowledge of God is found in Romans chapter 2, and that's this, morality. Morality, that we long for justice. There is a deep longing in the human soul for justice, a knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. You notice that in the world that we live in. We all operate with some kind of moral values or moral principles, but the question that the world needs to answer and that we need to be able to answer is where do they come from? Are they personal preferences? I had a conversation with a gentleman last week, and as we sat and we talked about the issue of morality, he, he told me that morality was, was something that you got to determine, and that was kind of determined by the majority in a culture. I've had multiple conversations where people tell me that morality is the product of a certain culture in time, and it shifts as culture in time shifts. So is that true? Is morality a, a matter of personal preference? Is morality a product of our culture and time? Are, are morals simply social conventions or are they somehow objective, binding, and valid apart from our opinion? And if so, if so, what is their foundation? I've had multiple conversations with people who claim to be moral relativists. And... Uh, it's interesting, every time I have a conversation with them, inevitably, as the conversation progresses, they all seem to have a very finely honed sense of what is right and wrong. They experience moral outrage. And, and one of the helpful 
aspects to talking to somebody who believes in moral relativism is to show them that there is a massive contradiction between what they say they believe and how they actually live. It's common to hear people say things like this, no one should impose their moral views on others because everyone has the right to find truth inside him or herself. You ever hear that? You don't have a right to impose your your moral values. Nobody has the right to determine what is moral and what is not. And yet, aren't there people in the world who are doing things that you believe are wrong? Like imposing their moral values? So we call a self-refuting argument. It defeats itself. Of course. So there are some kind of moral standard that people should abide by regardless of their individual convictions. And I love what Francis Schaeffer says. He says, all thoughts can be thought, but not all thoughts can be lived. In other words, he's, he's saying this, that it's impossible to be a consistent moral relativist. If you just play that thought out, it's impossible to live, and it defeats itself. Why is it impossible to be a consistent moral relativist? Well, because we all have a pervasive, powerful, and unavoidable belief in moral values and moral obligations. Every one of us has this ingrained in us. All human beings have moral feelings. We call this a conscience. Some people's consciences are more developed and more informed than others, that's for sure. But in practice, we inevitably treat some principles as absolute standards by which we judge the behavior of those who don't share our values. We just can't help it. Let me give you an illustration of this. The Nazis in the time of the Second World War believed that it was right, that they didn't see it as immoral to exterminate the Jewish people. They, they believed what they were doing was right. They believed what they were doing was a moral obligation. This was the moral majority. And when we think about that, I mean, how, let me just ask you, how does that sit with you, thinking about that? When somebody could come, come over to you and say, we believe this is right to kill four million people. Is there not a sense of outrage in your heart when you think of that? I mean, everybody would say, I don't care what they think, it's wrong. How come? Well, look what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is, is building a case for morality that is rooted in the existence of God. It's, it's not something that flows simply out of uh, the knowledge of a law that has been delivered and, and revealed to somebody. In fact, uh, there is a law that is ingrained in our hearts. And he says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, you see what he's saying there? That there is something, even in a Gentile who has no clue of the revealed law of God in, in tablet form, does what is right, does what the law of God demands of him. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even those who don't know God, even those who don't know his revealed word have this sense that their, their conscience is bound by certain uh, irrevocable, undeniable truths. 
And their conscience convicts them, it accuses them, or it excuses them, it frees them to do what they believe is right. And Paul is making the case that all of humanity is without an excuse before God because God has placed the knowledge of right and wrong, of good and evil in their heart. For Christians, God alone offers an objective foundation for moral values, which is not, by the way, the subject or subject to the whims of the powerful or the changing moods of public opinion. And I want you to consider it from the opposite angle. Look, if there is no God, then morals have no foundation. Our, our culture, it differs from all the other cultures that have gone before it. People still have strong moral convictions, but unlike people in other times and places, they don't have any visible basis for why they find some things to be evil and other things to be good. It's almost like their moral intuitions are free-floating in midair. You know, you look at the culture around us and you say, well, why, you know, if you don't believe in God, you know, why, why do you believe this is right and that's wrong? It's like their convictions, are, you know, their feet are firmly planted in midair. There's nothing to be grounded upon, nothing to stand firm on. Let me go back to the Nazis for a minute. Everybody's favorite topic, right? The Nazis, I believe it was in 1933, they imposed totalitarian rule across Germany. During that time, new laws were actually drawn up to enforce Nazi ideology. So the Nazis could claim that they used legal means to impose their wicked ideas. And the only way of challenging the Nazi approach was to argue that there existed a higher moral authority than the German state. This highlights an incredibly important issue for us. Are there transcendent grounds for concepts of morality and justice that are not merely the product of human convention? And if it's human convention, moral majority, if it's culturally determined, then nobody has the right to be angry over the slaughter of millions of Jews. Can you follow that logic? If there is no objective ground for morality, nobody has the right to be angry with Hitler. Nobody. In fact, the genocide of the Jews is as morally neutral as feeding the poor. That's a staggering reality. But we know better than that, don't we? We know better than that. We believe deeply that what took place was wrong. It was wicked. It was evil. And that is because God has placed the standard within our hearts, His standard. And we sense this objective moral standard, even if we don't know Him, we sense it, we believe it, we know it, and when we do, we actually, the Bible is telling us, we actually sense God Himself. Morality is one of the greatest witnesses that we experience in our hearts to the reality of God. The second is this, eternity. Eternity, that we long for more. We, we possess a sense of the brevity of human life. There's a deep-seated intuition that there is more to reality than the brief slice of time and scope of space that has been allocated to us here and now. Every one of us senses the possibility of something greater beyond this life, beyond this existence, the reality of death, does it not provoke us to think about what comes next? 
There has to be more. There has to be something better. And a journalist, Lisa Miller, recently did a study on cultural attitudes towards heaven. And this is taken from a a Western perspective. And she noted that individuals and societies seem to be hardwired to believe in, and I'm quoting here, in a place that embodies the best of everything. But beyond the best, what's most beautiful, most loving, most just, and most true. Maybe this is nothing more than a delusion. Maybe this is nothing more than wishful thinking or a product of our Judeo-Christian Western worldview. Or, or maybe it's a clue to our true identity and significance. Maybe it's a clue to the reality of God. That that is, after all, what the author of Ecclesiastes tells us. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, just listen. It says this. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, listen, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That phrase is so powerful that God has put eternity into the hearts of mankind. That there is a sense of of hope that is embedded in the human heart, a longing for another world. And some have said that this is the experience of the echo of Eden. St. Augustine in the 5th century spoke these words. He said, the haunting memory of paradise, which we can never shake off. Even in the midst of a busy life, we are reminded of another world, another way of existing. God has planted the idea of eternity in our hearts as a clue to the true meaning of the universe. And we are meant to think such thoughts and experience such longings because that's the way that God created us. God never created us as beings who are merely temporal. Part of the Christian worldview helps us understand that God has created every single human being with an eternal reality. God has drilled that deep within our hearts and in our souls. And flowing from that, not only do we experience this longing for more in eternity, we have this desire, we long for God. It's not just that we know there's more, that there has to be more. There is a deep longing in our hearts for God himself. Whether we know it or not, God has placed this deep within our heart, a deep awareness of a longing for something that is not possessed, but whose attraction is felt. We feel this pull towards the transcendent. We feel this pull towards the reality of a God over and above all things. We feel this sense of accountability to a God who has created and who rules the universe. And the Bible teaches us that this is grounded in the fact that we are created to actually fellowship with God. And we will not be fulfilled until we do so. We see this in the creation account. The very height of creation as God creates man, the pinnacle of of his creation, we see the unfolding story of how God and man were to dwell together. How, How death was never supposed to be. And how sin fractured this relationship with God. In fact, This longing that we have for God, I believe, is now perpetuated by our separation from God. 
As Augustine famously prayed, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The Apostle Paul appeals to this sort of longing, I believe, in Acts chapter 17. So flip there in your Bibles. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, and he's going about the city, and he's looking around, and and as he looks around the city, he sees that that it is a a very religious city. There are idols all over the place. People are worshiping all kinds of gods that have been created with their own hands. And after he's preached Jesus Christ in the synagogue, he goes to a place called the Areopagus, a place where the brilliant minds of the days, the philosophers of the days who debated these kinds of questions, the reality of life and death and God and existence and meaning and purpose, and he goes to this place with all of these intellectual minds and he begins to engage them with the truth of the gospel. It says in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And these people are so religious, they they so feel that longing for God, they they create all kinds of gods, and they even create like an altar or a plaque, if you will, to an unknown God, just in case they forgot one. You have to see what, what is being drawn out here in the human heart. There's a longing to know God. There is a deep desire for God. So man will create gods to try and fill that void for God. And he looks at them and he says, he says, you know, just springboarding off of this altar to an unknown God, he says, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind, listen to this, life and breath and everything. Your gods gods are formed and fashioned by your hands and you bring them food. They're dependent upon you, but the God of the universe, the one and only true God is dependent upon no man. He needs nothing from everybody. He gives everything to everybody. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Talk about design and structure. And that they should seek God. Here it is. This is it. This is it. Listen, listen. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Don't miss that. God's intention in producing this longing for him in our hearts is so that we might grope in the darkness and claw our way to find him. Blaise Pascal argues that the human experience of emptiness and yearning is a pointer to the true destiny of humanity. He says these words, what else does this longing and helplessness show us other than that there was once in each person a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. 
Nothing other than God is able to fill this abyss, as he calls it, a profound God-shaped gap within human nature, implanted by God as a means of drawing people back to him. This infinite abyss can only be filled with something that is infinite and unchanging. In other words, by God himself. Now, we, we look to fill this gap, and we look like the, the people in Athens to fill it in all the wrong places and with all the wrong things. That is the human plight. We are trying to fill a God-shaped abyss in our soul with everything and anything that can never fill that hole. It's God's way of saying to humanity, you're looking for me. You're looking for me and I'm really not far from you. Like a stomach that craves food is only satisfied by food, listen, so too the soul that craves God is only satisfied by God. And at least to our final, final clue, this internal witness to the existence of God and that is this, relationships. There is a deep longing in our hearts and souls for love. The Genesis creation account emphasizes the, the goodness of God's creation, yet there is one point at which God determines that changes need to be made. In Genesis 2.18, he says, you know the words, right? It is not good for man to be, what? Alone. I find it so fascinating, don't you, that God allowed Adam, and I think this is intentional. God doesn't do anything without intentionality, right? But God allows Adam to experience aloneness before giving to him the gift of Eve. He wanted him to know by experience that he was created for relationship, that there is a craving for relationship and love in his soul. He wanted him to know that we were made and designed to be in relationship with one another, but listen, more importantly, that points to this reality that we were created to be in relationship with Him. And the biblical picture of the Garden of Eden represents Adam and Eve living in harmony with God and with each other. To be human, authentically human, is to exist in relationship. That is what we were meant for. And our need to be in relationship, we, we see this, we experience this, we know this is true in our own hearts. Our need for relationship is understood through the intense longing to love and to be loved by others. This is the way God designs us. In fact, Victor Hugo once wrote this, this powerful little phrase. He said, the supreme happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. I believe that's true. Knowing we are loved gives us the security and confidence we need to live our lives. We need to know that we matter to somebody. We need to know that somebody loves us. Love is ultimately what matters most to us, not wealth, not power, not position, not anything in this world. We can't live without meaningful, personal relationships, but the love we long for in human relationships is simply another signpost. For no one loves us perfectly. Yet that is what we all crave. We crave within our inner being to be known and loved perfectly. 
This craving for relationships and love are best explained by the God of the Bible and by the Christian faith. That we were created to be in relationship with Him. We were created to be loved and to love Him. We were created in the image of a triune God who lives and exists eternally in relationship, in eternal love. And while we believe God exists, we believe in a God who loves us and invites us to know Him. I'm beginning to branch into next week's topic, so I should stop. Why are we here? I mean, it's hard to separate these things. There's so much crossover, but I hope you see that both the the witness of the world and and the witness within our own hearts screams the existence of God. And if God truly exists, it has implications for our life, and it answers the question, why are we here? It would be irresponsible for me Uh, to leave all of that to next week. And let me just close by saying this. This God loves you. This God loves you deeply. He created you. You are His. And He loves you so much that He has come into this world to seek and to save you. And the relationship that you were meant to have with Him was fractured by your sin, by your rebellion against Him. And God loved you so much that He came, He alone came to repair that relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ. Deep down, we know our relationship with God is broken. And the good news of the gospel is that in love, He came for us. We not only know that He exists, we can know and be known by Him. The fingerprints of God are all around us and within us. The clues are there. Do you see them? Will you believe them? Father, we pray that you would work mightily in our hearts. God, I pray that your spirit would work to bring a deep sense of conviction. Lord, both for unbeliever and believer now in this moment that you are there. You exist, Lord, and that you have not been silent. You are not removed from your creation. You are deeply invested in your creation. God, you have created us to have this inherent longing for you, a desire for you that only you can fill. That, Lord, our souls are restless, and we believe this, Lord, even as as believers, as we drift away from you at different seasons of our life, our souls become restless until they find their rest in you. And, God, I pray that there would be some in this place this morning that would return to you, that would find their rest in you and you alone. God, I pray that there would be some in this place this morning that for the very first time would find what their soul has been longing for, that they would look and see the God of this universe, the one who created, the one who rules and reigns, and the one who deeply loves them so much that he would come to rescue them. God, we pray that you would ignite our hearts with these truths, that you would stir up our affection for you, that we would live lives of worship and praise of you, that we would long to know you more. For you alone are our great God. It's to you, Lord, we turn our hearts, attention now. It's to you we raise our voices. So would you receive now our praise in the mighty and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.